0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Physics by the River. Um, today I'm joined by Professor Charles Adams. Uh, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good actually, it's been a busy day but uh, I'm enjoying it.
0: Nice, wow, what better way to de-stress than asks, answer some physics questions. Yeah, I'm yeah. nervous, I mean <laughs> I've never
1: done this before so uh, let's, let's see. I'm also <laughs> in, looking forward to it as well.
0: Uh, hopefully you'll find it fun. So, to start, I wanted to ask how your path into academia began.
1: Well, that's kind of a long story, but I guess I realised at school that I liked physics, and I was good at physics, so um, then went on to university and did physics, and I wasn't necessarily thinking of doing research initially, Um, I was thinking maybe going into more industrial research, and... At At university, I went to a seminar on lasers and that inspired me wanted i wanted to work on lasers at that time um and then i also wanted to go abroad <laughs> so i was looking at for some opportunity where I could sort of go overseas and work on lasers and then the the academic route was the 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 best way of of doing that so i i looked at Going to either Canada or Australia, and I applied to do to some universities to do masters and PhDs, and and I got offered a place in in the McMaster University in Canada to do a masters by research on lasers. So so I did that, um, and I was still thinking I would probably go into industry in in some form, but. So I started doing this masters, and then we got some results and I submitted um, our, I wrote a paper, submitted a paper to a conference that was in California. And um, I went and delivered my my conference talk. It was only fifteen minutes, but it it, it was massive. I mean, there was about four hundred people in the room and um it's still one of the biggest conference talks my first conference talk and one of the, the biggest audiences i've ever had to to talk to um and people came up and asked me questions afterwards. I, I felt it had gone disastrously, but it, it, it seemed to have, have gone quite well. And I, I just was so fired up about that, that, the whole process of doing science, communicating science, and then, and then the fact that people seemed to care and <laughs> all these people turned up and wanted to hear what you had to say. So it was at that stage I decided to do a PhD, again in laser physics, and then I did a PhD in in laser physics at at Strathclyde in in Glasgow. It also went very well. We, We built this laser that became quite a successful commercial product afterwards. But I got slightly frustrated with just building lasers, even though it was a new type of laser, because it was all about Um, just can you get more power out of the laser so you know your supervisor comes in every day saying how many watts have you got from your laser what's the performance and and I went to some conferences and meetings where people were using lasers more than um, building them and and that was more about quantum physics and I thought "Well, I really want to work on on quantum stuff using lasers to do quantum things so, when it came to looking for postdocs after I'd got my PhD, I looked at groups where I could, do, could, could use lasers for things like laser cooling, which was a, a big thing at the time, looking at uh, using lasers to cool down atoms. So, I did two postdocs in the area of light manipulation or laser manipulation of atoms, first in Germany and then one in the US. And I did laser cooling in the US. Um, at Stanford and then I got the job here and then set up um, a laser cooling group and then we did lots of experiments with cold atoms Um, we also did some lasers interacting with hot atoms Um, and we've been pushing more and more in the direction of doing quantumy things um, generating single photons aiming towards quantum entanglement quantum optics um, so it's just evolved in that direction, but so really using light and atoms to do to do quant interesting quantum stuff because I, I became just fascinated by the quantum question and the things that we don't yet understand and trying to b- make simple experiments that help us to answer these fundamental questions if there are answers. Okay, that's well, quite tale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a long journey, but uh, you know, I've been, yeah, I've it's a, yeah, long story. I've done over probably three decades now of um, research, so.
0: Got a lot under your belt. <laughs> yeah. I'm quite interested that you said you, um, you're like keen to go abroad.
1: Yeah. Like, are there, um, like
0: any particular reasons why
1: you wanted to do work? Was... Well, <laughs> uh, there, there was some, I think that when I grew up, um, so I, I come from the northwest and a town called Rochdale that pe- people might know. It's on the outskirts of Manchester, but it's not it's not a great place um, to live. So when I w- was at school, I mean, with my friends, we, our main aim was to get out of Rochdale. So we, yeah. <laughs> we had to study hard, do well at school, and then we could get out. And so I got out and go to university. But then somehow um, that wasn't enough. So the next <laughs> step was to get out of Britain. Um, so, so I was desperate to leave, but not because I hate, hated Britain or something. It was just that I was searching for more adventure. So once I'd moved, you know, one step was to move out of your hometown to a more interesting town. And the next step was really to move out of the country. So it was just something I wanted to experience. You know, I was fascinated by other countries. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I, was, I would really wanted to sort of go abroad and have that experience of of living in another country, living and working in another country, and it it has been i wonder. I I would say one of the most wonderful things about this the career of being an academic has been that opportunity, if you want it, to to work in different places. I mean, it, there there is only a finite set of countries maybe that you can go and and work in. Maybe, maybe not, but I mean, there's some obviously some countries have more to offer to academic physicists than than others. Um, but it, it, I have had the opportunity of um, living and working in Canada, Germany, US, and I've spent quite a lot of time in France as well. So, which is yeah, that's a, a real plus. Yeah, it does sound really
0: interesting. I've been thinking a bit about maybe doing something like abroad after um, my undergrad. I think that'd be really interesting. But, yeah.
1: yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. A, it's definitely something. Nice if you have that opportunity, a nice thing to explore. And you learn a lot about, you know, cause Britain's only a small place, <laughs> right? And but we sometimes tend to think it's everything, but it's a very small part of the world. <laughs>
0: so, well, so you see, you've done physics in quite a lot of different places. And what would you say were like, what, well, if any, were there big differences?
1: Yeah, there's different approaches in different countries. Um, I think that we're very creative in Britain, so I I think that's a that's a strength here. Um, sometimes maybe we're not quite as. You know, there's the the idea of the sort of amateur, the the gifted amateur or something. You yeah, so sometimes we're maybe not as and, and sometimes the funding is not quite as good here as some other countries. So if you go to Germany, I think that they have they have more funding. U.S. has more funding, but only if you're in a sort of top top group. Yeah. Um, they work very, very long hours in the U.S. They don't take um, many holidays. But then they're not necessarily as efficient um, on a day-to-day basis. Whereas in Germany, they're very, very efficient. <laughs> Sometimes they won't talk to you in the corridor. But, um, <laughs> but but then they take their holidays and they'll go home in the evening. Um, so so there, there are sort of cultural differences. Um, but also our science is very international. So in general, you'll find... I think the the best teams always have people from many many countries anyway, and you tend to find that when you join a group that there'll be people from all over the world. And if anything, it's become even more international. Um, hopefully, that carries on. I mean, there's a it's getting a bit more difficult now to to move to some countries, but uh, and and also for people to come from some countries. But I think it's always been a strength of the scientific community just in how international it is. Yeah, I think
0: the kind of prospect of being able to meet such a very kind of range of people also interested in physics is a big, um, I guess, something that appeals to me for like going into academia. Yeah,
1: it's like a global community, and you, you know you feel you feel part of something, and you feel sort of welcome in the, in that in that group. It's quite uh, nice, <laughs> and hopefully everyone's pulling together in the. In the same direction because we all want to advance science, so everyone's got a similar goal.
0: Nice. Uh, I wanna. I think I'm gonna go adjust the kind of worms that is quantum optics. Could you explain a bit about how that, like, what that is and how it differs from just kind of standard optics?
1: Yeah. So the whole thing about Quantum is... so. Quanta means counting, really. So we we know that light is made of photons and we can count photons. So really quantum optics is about the control and the application of light on the single or few photon level. So when you're really exploiting those photon properties. So you want to have ways of producing... Single photons or two photons, ways of measuring them, and ways of looking at correlations or entanglement between photons. So most people, so people are now working with you know quite a few photons. So you might work with um, say sixteen photons that are all entangled with one another. But that that's about the sort of scale of things, I guess. And most people are working either with you know, one or two photons in in the quantum optics area, so so a few photons. Um, so it's white light at its very very uh, weakest level. But what what's interesting about that is the photon is a fundamental particle in in the in in the particle physics sense, and it's also very accessible because we don't have to go to CERN or somewhere to get this part. You know, these particles are all around us. But actually, looking at things at the single photon level is quite tricky because obviously there are, there are loads of other photons in this room at the moment. There's you know more than trillions, you know trillions and trillions of photons kicking around. So if you want to work with a single photon, you have to make it completely dark, and you have to have a particular type of detector called a single photon counter, um, and then you have to control the light um, in order to. And that's something that's only really happened I mean, it began in the seventies I guess. So it's a, so the it's about a fifty year old field experimentally. But the idea of photons is, is, is much older, but people really doing experiments with them has only sort of come about in the last fifty years. And and now there's a lot of progress and there's also quite a lot of applications of um quantum optics in different areas, things like we well, can use photons for quantum computing you can use photons for communications, so there's like quantum communications um, you can have a secure communications using individual photons, so, so things like that so there's both a fundamental side and an applied side to it Do you have any like
0: kind of specific hopes for research you're doing, in terms of like practical um, applications?
1: Well that there- Yeah, that goes in different directions, not just the um, sort of quantum direction. So I'd say for me, the quantum question is more fundamental and more of a science question of trying to understand what entanglement really means and whether we can get any new insight into that with the type of experiments that we might be able to do. So one of the things we worked on for the last decade or so is whether we can make photons interact so normally photons don't interact so they just pass through one another so if you send two beams of light they'll just cross and and there are no photon-photon collisions at least at normal energy scales but we were looking at ways that can I make photons interact and and that's by giving them some character of, of say matter so when when a photon travels through a medium it actually picks up some of the character of that medium and if we can create an unusual medium where the, the what's mapped onto the photon is something that can exert force on another photon that has that similar character then you can see photon photon interactions so that's what we tried to do over the last uh, 10 years and then if you can do that, you could say, okay, now I have interacting photons. What can I do with interacting photons? Well, if you want to do something like build a quantum computer out of photons, then you would really like to have photons that interact because to make a gate, so if I want something like this photon switches that photon between channel zero and channel one, which would be a, a controlled gate, so this foot, Conditional on this photon being here. I can switch the state of this other photon. Then you need an interaction between the photons And so it was a kind of holy grail in the whole optics area or quantum optics area to make strongly interacting photons And we did that and the way we did it was by making our photons acquire a bit of character from what are known as Rydberg atoms So, Rydberg atoms are these atoms where the electron is very very far from the from the nucleus so the electrons very far away so you have this giant atom and these giant atoms can basically interact very strongly with other giant atoms so if a photon goes in creates a giant atom and another photon goes in and creates another giant atom then they interact very strongly and that's the way that we make strongly interacting photons now and we can do all that now which is brilliant Um, But whether you can, we haven't really found out how to make it into a sort of practical, useful device. So so it works at a fundamental level, but it doesn't work well enough to be really useful at the moment. (laughs) But maybe in the future we'll find a way of making it work in a more practical way. If you like, it works, but not very efficiently. And if we wanted to use it for quantum computing, we'd need need it to work with sort of ninety nine point nine nine percent efficiency or something like that, I which see. is quite hard to to do.
0: Mm-hmm. So is that like to do with um, quantum entanglement, or is
1: yeah? So entanglement is the interaction. So to get in quantum entanglement, you need things to interact. So I can't entangle two things, two particles, whether they're photons or any type of particle. I cannot entangle them unless they interact with one another. So and then so entangling photons is a if I have two photons that are not entangled, to make them entangled is a is a tricky thing. The only way to create entanglement quantum entanglement currently using photons is a, it's what 's called post selection so you select certain events from all the events happen uh, that do happen, but they 're improbable, so when you try to repeat that process many times, the probability goes down and down and down it 's like trying to trying to throw eight sixes in a row or whatever <laughs> it just doesn 't happen very very often. So, what you would like to do is have a, a way of deterministically creating entanglement, but that means that you've got to make the photons interact with one another. So, that's been a big holy grail for the whole optics or quantum optics community of how to make strongly interacting photons. And we found one way of doing that using these uh, Rydberg atoms.
0: Yeah, um, when you mention those like Rydberg atoms, of the electrons far away, I, I envision like a a nucleus like wrapped up in a hundred like layers of coats and jumpers
1: yeah it's a bit it's it's sort of really like blowing the atom up so it's like a massive expansion and these if, if you if you compare sometimes people make these scale comparisons that if if um, a normal atom is like a tennis ball then then this um then one of these Rydberg atoms would be the have a dimension that's bigger than this tallest building in the world kind oh of thing. So, wow, okay so the the scale differences are really really quite um, enormous these Rydberg atoms need to go on a diet <laughs> yeah 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 Yeah.
0: <laughs> so are there any like particular reasons why we don't have a good um kind of definite way to entangle photons together like why do we need to rely on probabilistic methods
1: well, because they don't interact, so because photons fundamentally have, have no interaction, so there are no there are no forces on a on a photon. Um, it's a non-interacting particle, um, which is very different to an electron. So an electron has a Coulomb interaction with another electron, but a photon doesn't have any interaction with another photon. Okay, and that makes control in in a way that's good um, because. If they did all interact with one another, then seeing things would be a problem. <laughs> because rather than photons traveling in straight lines from A to B and then we see what things look like, all the photons would be interacting between A and B and they would all get in a, in a terrible uh, mix-up. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, it's good. so it's good that photons don't interact. So that's a, a plus point. Um, but but then it's also a downside in that it means that some aspects of, of we we find difficult to control it also means that because photons don't interact it means that they're very useful for for communication and sending from a to b so that you know op- optical fiber communications for example are very very powerful because we you know i can send a photon around the world and it comes back and it's exactly the same photon that i sent and it does it very fast mm, reliable <laughs> yeah they're reliable they're very reliable yeah
0: so, like, I think early towards the start, you mentioned something about like the quantum question.
1: Yeah what 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 did you mean by that? Yeah, so there's an aspect of quantum physics that we just can't get our head round, and it kind of comes back to wave-particle duality, which is also the essence of quantum optics. Because for photons, we have we understand that light is a wave, but it's also this particle. And we really struggle with this issue of how it can be both wave and particle. Um, the famous French physicist Alan Aspie put puts it nicely that if I, ask, if I ask light the wave question, are you a wave? It says, yes, I'm a wave. If I ask it the particle question, are you a particle? It says, yes, I'm a particle. Um, but it can never be both at the same time. So our human mindset is always set on something has to be one or the other. It has to be has to be wave or particle, but how can, it, how can it be both? But the experiments definitely show that it has both of these aspects. So it both displays interference, which is this particle-like property, uh, which is the wave-like property, and it, it, and, it, it, and you can count the photons, which is the particle-like property. So when you mix those two things together, you get answers that just don't um, fit with our um, human intuition in any way so and, and you kind of have to resort to mathematics to describe this but you can't help feeling that there should be some way of understanding it that's a bit more in intuitive rather than just resorting to writing down some strange equations that <laughs> seem to describe everything so we're kind of hoping that these simple experiments on on a few photon systems give us pictures or more insight in a way that we we get a more complete picture of what's going on at the quantum level. So do you think we'll ever get like a satisfactory answer because... That's an interesting question and a hard question because... <laughs> I mean, there's a lecture that I like from Feynman. He gave these messenger lectures at Yale University, I think in the 60s. And he, there's lots of famous quotes from Feynman at those lectures and... and um, he says nobody understands he says there might be 10 people in the world that really understand general relativity but as for quantum mechanics nobody understands quantum mechanics and you know and he was one of the pioneers and won the Nobel prize and then you sort of think well if Feynman didn't understand quantum (laughs) mechanics what hope for the for the rest of us and he also says you know don't don't keep asking yourself this question, you know, how can it be like that? How, how can the quantum world be so bizarre? He, he His argument is just sort of like accept it and then just use that and, and make predictions and they will come true because the theory is good. Um, but I always feel that I do want to ask that question, you know, how can it be like that? And I think Asking the right questions and looking for more insight is sometimes the way to make new discoveries um, and not accepting that people say, oh, well, that's not going to work or we're never going to understand that. I think I think if you start to just accept what people have, have said and you don't decide, well, I'm interested in this question, so I'm going to go and try and answer it, even if you don't know how to answer it, just being interested in the question is enough motivation to make you a scientist, and and you may find that you're spending a lot of time not really answering that question, but you actually started down this road because you wanted to answer that question, and even if you never get to that answer, at least you've done something worthwhile, hopefully. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite funny how, like, I'm sure for a lot of people... The motivation for going to science is like curiosity
1: yeah i think that's exactly it it's, things. yeah i mean first then, you want to understand yeah so and, and if you find something you don't understand then that's the, the place to look to be more <laughs> curious
0: i guess yeah with <laughs> quantum mechanics and stuff like that it's like the most kind of bizarre yeah. thing and then people kind of go the other way like wow it just is what it is you know
1: yeah i i think that i mean there's there's different things you have to do because, you know, if, you, if you're if you just doing your um, undergraduate exams then you just need to sort of get familiar with the techniques and the equations and so that you can answer the... Um, but hopefully that doesn't completely destroy, you know, the thing that made us all physicists in the first place which was this curiosity of trying to answer these bigger questions like origin of the universe, how, why is it quantum, you know, and... So, you know, you know that's the thing that we want to sort of keep alive, even in our teaching a little bit, to, to ask those, um, to keep that curiosity and say, there's still things that we don't, that we could understand better. Still questions to answer. It's mm. yeah. so like doing
0: doing first, yeah, I'm like struggling, trying to sketch like a wave equation. And then yeah. but I, but I still feel like I barely get what a wave equation is.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we often don't spend a lot of time discussing those. I mean, it, it's almost in the realm of uh, metaphysics, you know, so you, you, you've you got an equation, you've got this psi and that's your wave function. And then we know there's measurement and people talk about collapse and, you know, and there are all these words, but what's really going on? You know, have I really understood what's going on? And when you go and ask the, when you go and ask me or or some other quantum person in the department, do do they really understand what's what's going on? Um, probably not. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Feynman <they're> pretty, didn't. <laughs> yeah, Feynman said nobody understands it. So I always think, well, I'm in good company. As a, if Feynman didn't, they give. I'm in good company, and uh, he didn't give up though. So forty-two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Feynman interestingly pretty much came up with um, the, the whole quantum computing. Business. You know, so he asked the question: What happens if we start to build computers out of individual atoms or individual particles? And that was that was in the eighties. It was one of the final sort of pieces of work that Feynman did. Um, and when you read some of his articles, it's interesting because he. He almost admits, you know, this is a crazy question, because like back in the 80s, nobody thought it was technologically feasible to make c- computers out of single atoms. And, uh, and and he writes in one of his articles, he says, he, you know, let's imagine um, making a computer out of single atoms, um, because that's the crazy kind of thought that a professor like me likes to have. <laughs> You know, but I mean, that started a whole field, which now is massive, actually, and everybody now is talking about, and there are companies and making these things. You know, Google's investing billions, and 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 it all starts because somebody's curious enough to ask uh, the right question.
0: Mm, yeah, quantum computers are quite exciting. Over, I'm like dreading the thought of having to troubleshoot a quantum printer. Why? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, then when the paper comes out, yeah, this what you print out is in a superposition. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i like turning it into a sweat just thinking about
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> is there like anything else you wanna mention?
1: Well, there was one thing I was just thinking when you were talking about the the, the quantum printer, um, because uh, um, one of one of my colleagues, he he often says, you know, if you can see it, it's not quantum, which is also a yeah, I mean, it's a, it it is it is a nice summary because you know once we can see it, or well, once any classical measuring device sees it, then whatever this superposition was, you know, this quantum thing of it being two things at once, is is no longer there. It can only in the classical world it can only be that or that, not both at the same time. So if we had a quantum printer, somehow as soon as as soon as the printout is is done. Uh, it wouldn't be quantum anymore. We would see it and it's not it's out there in the classical world and um and now it's not quantum anymore. Well that, that eases my, <laughs> my woes. It eases your anxiety, is it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'll be able to rest easy at night now. Yeah, yeah having to dread,
1: but... I don't know what the application would be uh, um, it's an interest I've never heard of the quant- there you go you can invent the quantum printer tell us how it's <laughs> I'd rather not print. Printers printer's like would be in my being yeah. <laughs> I
0: feel like I'd be betraying what I stand for me. a yeah. quantum printer yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast well it's been fun yeah I hope yeah really enjoyed it thanks a lot um
0: I'll see you all next time. Goodbye.